Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John People saying welcome to Channel 127. Thank you, as always, to the great Dino Vidala for being such a wonderful live lead-in. Let me begin with a quote. Liberalism implies particularly freedom of thought, freedom from orthodox dogma, the right of others to think differently from one's self. Liberalism implies a free mind, open to new ideas, and willing to give attentive consideration. When I say liberty... I mean liberty of the individual to think his own thoughts and live his own life as he desires to think and live. So said Republican Robert Taft, quoted by President John F. Kennedy in his book, Profiles and Courage, page 155. This is progress. We're all set for a great week. I hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend for the next three hours. We are taking your calls. We are live and interactive. 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Remember, we're just like cable news, except uh, we listen to you and your voice goes out on our air. 866-997-4748. lot of news we got to get to. Obviously, uh, Donald Trump has now promised to further shred the Constitution and end birthright citizenship in the United States, which he does not have the power to do, even if he's president. I understand wanting to please racists, but really? Uh, Tim Walls, governor of Minnesota, just signed a bill making his state the 23rd U.S. state to legalize recreational cannabis. And the Russian government issued an arrest warrant for Lindsey Graham following comments he made in support of Ukraine's counteroffensive. You know... When they came for Lindsey Graham, I said nothing. Actually, no, I said, here, take him. And they said, oh, no, we don't want this. And I said, too bad, bitches. You wanted it. He's yours now. You're stuck. Um, And Elizabeth Holmes has turned herself in and will begin serving her 11-year sentence for fraud. Of course, her company, Theranos, famously claimed to be able to run full genetic diagnostics from a simple blood sample. I wish someone would make a documentary about her story. Guys, we have a great show Tonight, homicides are down 12% so far this year, continuing 2022's trend. Chicago homicides, 
down last year, down again this year. L.A. homicides, down last year, down again this year. New York City homicides, down last year, down against this year. And, of course, Joe Biden wouldn't use the 14th Amendment to override the dead limit because norms in the courts. But Donald Trump can promise to end the 14th Amendment's birthright citizenship provision because he gets to do that. He's president. Suck it, liberals. So let's get to it. We're going to be calling out the hypocrites and bringing good trouble to the right wing bubble. By the way, nine young people were arrested after a gun battle this weekend in Missouri. At January Wabash Memorial Park, on the first day the pool opened for summer season, nine people after a gun battle. Missouri is a permitless carry state. So tonight we have some really, really great guests. First off, Randall Barnes is going to be joining us. I'm a big fan of this young man. He's a terrific writer. Randall Barnes, you might know because he's the founder and CEO of HBCU Pulse, and he hosts HBCU Pulse Radio here on Channel 142, Friday at 5 p.m. He is a graduate of Fort Valley State University, and he runs the uh, HBCU Pulse website. Um, He has a piece about how Joe Biden spoke there at the Howard University giving the commencement. And um, there was a lot of controversy over whether the president was pandering by condemning white supremacy. Randall has the receipts and is here to explain why the president was not pandering. He's actually really, really against white supremacists. Also, I'm so happy to welcome to the show uh, a guy whose piece I read, William Horn. He is um, a, a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University, has his PhD in history from George Washington University. He researches racial capitalism. And um, he has uh, he's the co-founder and editor of the Activist History Review. Last week, he wrote an article for the Daily Beast about teaching in a state whose governor is seeking to suppress every part of your lesson plan. You might have read his piece in the Daily Beast. It blew my mind. It's called I'm a Professor. Florida just banned everything I teach. And imagine Florida banning everything you teach because the governor just wants to be president and thinks making racists happy is the easiest way to do it. And the great Dr. Tracy Pearson will be with us in hour number three, taking your calls all night long and discussing everything in politics and pop culture. Here's the big news. Uh, Chris Hauselt is not with us tonight. He is sick. Thea Harper is not with us tonight. She is traveling. So the mighty Sean Bertolo is running this fort this evening. We're really thrilled to have him. Matt is also helping with uh, with the phones and running the boards. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. You deserve a better time. But guys, when you call up, try to be as entertaining as possible for Sean and Matt. They just lost their entire Tuesday, and, and we got to make it as entertaining as we can. Uh, and I know you can do it. 866-997-4748. 866 we ready? We're going to do this? Let's do a show. As predicted, like we said, as promised, as foretold, they came up with a debt deal. Uh, you probably were paying to attention to the news over the weekend and heard when uh, Republican negotiators reached a deal with the White House Saturday to set up a bill that would, you know, avoid default on our national debt. Spoiler alert before we go any further. It's upset some people. Let's discuss. Did it upset you? Did it inspire you? As a liberal, are you furious? As a conservative, are you furious? As a Democrat, are you happy that this old man keeps outplaying these fascists every step of the way? This agreement between Joe Biden and House Speaker McCarthy is going to raise the debt limit for two years if it's approved by the House and the Senate. It's going to avoid a complete worldwide economic catastrophe. Biden started off this whole process, you'll remember, demanding a clean debt limit. He was not going to negotiate the budget. He tried to keep them separate. McCarthy kept on trying deep cuts in domestic discretionary spending, huge increases in military spending, and we'll get to that. So they struck this deal on a phone call. 
And it was revealed around 8.30 on Saturday night. Now they got to rush it through this Congress before the default date of June 5th. Any deal that could pass both a, a, a very close House and a very close Senate to land on Biden's desk is going to piss off a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. Let's get that out of the way right now. And the Biden administration's concessions on SNAP work requirements have upset a lot of people on the left. We'll get to that. While McCarthy's decision to leave a few fights for the future has infuriated a lot of the baby fascists in his far right wing. But it's good negotiating when both sides give up something in a deal. The only problem with that is when the Democrats give something up, it's something that helps needy, struggling Americans. When the Republicans give something up, it means a Republican donor might have to buy a yacht that's two feet shorter. But Kevin McCarthy has a lot at stake here. I mean, his survival as speaker could be at stake. Now, he held it together for five months, didn't he? I mean, listen, I'll give credit to him. The unity this man has been able to forge among so many different kinds of Republicans who hate him. He has one of the narrowest majorities ever. He's got to keep the rebellions down. No one ever thought he could make, what was it, 15 votes to finally get there? And now he's held it together. Now, well, Dan Bishop said this is a career-defining vote for every Republican. And he accused McCarthy of forfeiting the unity the House GOP has forged through all these deals that made him the speaker. In fact, Dan Bishop today became the first Republican to publicly say he's considering a motion to vacate the chair, meaning to fire Kevin. Let me play another clip for you. Here's Congressman Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. Here he picks out the ways in which Kevin McCarthy has aggrieved his own caucus. Speaker McCarthy had a mandate from the American people, negotiated uh, with a powerful negotiation position of a unified Republican Party, not only just in the House, but in the House and the Senate, to hold the line for the bill that we passed. This deal that we've heard about totally fails to deliver on all of it. If you want to get into the details, let's just start with the IRS. 80, you know, 87,000 new IRS agents, all the billions of dollars, $1.4 billion cut, leaving the balance, the balance to be used by the IRS immediately, starting at this moment, continuing in that at this moment, continuing on for the duration of this presidency. Four trillion dollars at least, an unlimited debt ceiling increase. Unlimited. Okay. Unlimited debt ceiling. And oh, by the way, puts the incoming president, whether that's Joe Biden or whether that's a Republican, having to deal with it in a lame duck session. Absolutely and completely Hmm. unacceptable. Okay. Godless hypocrite Scott Perry, who, by the way, doesn't care about the deficit. One quarter of all the money in our total national debt came from Donald Trump and his horrible, stupid, unnecessary, evil, regressive tax cut for people who didn't need a tax cut. Scott Perry had no problem with that. And also, Scott, you'll notice this. They're really upset that the IRS is going to be hiring more agents to crack down on tax cheats. Remember when Obama tried to do that? Well, Obama did. The IRS under Obama. They they found out that a lot of these PACs and supergroups and 501c3s that weren't supposed to be political were, and they were trying to shut down the tax cheats, trying to rip us off. Ooh, Republicans don't like that, do they? Now, the Democratic Progressive Caucus thinks this deal doesn't help people enough. The Republican Caucus doesn't think it hurts enough people. That's all you need to know. But here's here's the most important items. It raises the debt ceiling. Two years past the next presidential election till 2025, it keeps non-defense discretionary spending 
steady. These are victories for Democrats. Republicans wanted new work requirements on people on welfare. Because, you know, what you want to do as a good Christian when someone is struggling with poverty is to punish them with more poverty. And they got a little bit of that, not as much as they wanted. A boost in defense spending, which we're going to get to. And they got what we predicted, the clawbacks of all the unspent COVID aid. Also, Republicans won because there's no new tax increases on people who could easily afford a tax increase. Uh, Military spending increases by 3% to $886 billion for the next fiscal year. $886 billion for the next fiscal year. Non-military spending stays the same next year. It'll increase 1% in 2025 fiscal year. Again, the IRS funding got cut by $21.4 billion, with $20 billion of that being repurposed for other spending areas. Work requirements are temporarily expanding for some adults who get SNAP. That's food stamps. Democrats are saying it's not as bad as it could have been. The main change is they're raising the upper age limit from 49 to 55 for able-bodied adults in the program to have to work to get food. And that's going to go down in 2030 anyway. So the administration believes the number of people required to work while enrolled in SNAP will be about the same because there's also an expansion of the exemptions for vets and homeless people and former foster children. Again, unspent COVID money, about $30 billion, that's being rescinded. Then they're going to have changes to SNAP that eliminate work requirements for vets and the homeless people. And um, everything on climate, it sucks. The newest debt ceiling agreement fast-tracks pipelines and more dirty fossil fuel projects. It's a huge blow to everybody who was excited about Joe Biden campaigning for these great climate policies. You know, look, there's lots in here that's good. There's lots in here that's bad. It's entertaining to watch Republicans be angry. And... What's best about it, maybe, is that it establishes the precedent that taking the economy hostage is a really effective way to pass unpopular policies, if you're a Republican, that would never get through otherwise. Keep that in mind. Biden didn't advance any, not many, new Democratic policy goals in the agreement with McCarthy. He more or less protected everything he's accomplished so far. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez says she's voting against it. Uh, Progressive Caucus Chair Pramia Jayapal said there will be real harmful impacts for poor people and working people. And she's right. She says but they have serious concerns about the environmental justice implications of this bill. And she's right. Here's Senator Chuck Schumer. He's here talking about what's good about the bipartisan debt limit agreement and how they want to make it pass really quickly. The bipartisan agreement accomplishes two major goals. First and foremost, it takes default off the table, sparing Americans from immense economic pain. And second, it protects key investments that are essential for our growing economy, for growing our economy, for fixing our infrastructure, for making the U.S. more competitive on the world stage. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid will not be touched. Our veterans will be cared for. And again, we are avoiding the single worst outcome possible, a default on the national debt. From the start, I've said the best way forward to avoiding default is bipartisan cooperation, and that's what this agreement represents. Again, nobody gets everything they wanted, but this bill is the responsible, prudent, and necessary way forward. A default on the national debt would be one of the great disasters in our nation's economic history. It would mean another painful recession. It would mean eight million fewer jobs. And it would mean soaring costs on credit card payments, mortgages, small businesses, loans, and diminished 401ks. There is no reason to subject the American people to the pain of default. 
We still have more work to do in Congress, but I'm optimistic that the path has now been paved and our objective is clear. We must pass this bipartisan agreement avoiding default as soon as we can. Okay, so Noah Smith, the blogger, had an even better take than that. He said this recent fight over the debt ceiling was more like a return to the pointless obstructionism and grandstanding that characterized politics in the 2010s. There was absolutely zero reason for the House GOP leadership to use the debt ceiling. They could have just forced the deal through the normal appropriations process. Few people actually believe that the country's leaders would let the U.S. default on its sovereign debt due to a random minor budget fight. I certainly didn't. And we didn't either. We all knew this was a shakedown by the Republican Party, that Joe Biden was right in the beginning of saying, nope, we're going to do a clean debt ceiling and we'll negotiate the budget another time. But eventually, the media helped the Republicans make our economy their hostage, and they shook it down. They shook the president down and got horrible policies passed. And that's not even the worst part. You know, look, I think Biden did a great job. He's probably the only person who could do negotiations like this. Max Burns of Punchbowl asked McCarthy, how would he describe his interactions with Biden? And and McCarthy said, very professional, very smart, very tough. So he's not a dementia patient? Really, Kev? Okay. Biden said back, one of the things I heard some of you saying to reporters is, why doesn't Biden say what a good deal it is? You think that's going to help get it passed? No. That's why you guys don't bargain very well. Damn. Biden's smart. Uh, And again, we we have taught Republicans to keep extorting us. Okay, but but this is also what happens when we don't get out the vote. When we don't get out the vote in this country, when we just sit home and expect good things to happen, these guys have too much power. And then we have to have these performative outrage showdowns where the people who want to do nothing to help Americans, where the people the minority of Americans vote for get things they want. Uh, Again, Republicans are losing their minds now. They have been torn asunder. They are calling this an abomination. A lot of them are talking about getting rid of McCarthy. Here's Chip Roy. The House Freedom Caucus is not happy, and this bill will not get a majority vote in the House, they say. At the end of the day, the only person that would default in this town is Joe Biden, unless Republicans default on the American dream by voting for this bad bill. That is why this group will oppose it. We will continue to fight it today, tomorrow, and no matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred unless we stop this bill by tomorrow. Well, get her. Yeah, Byron Donalds was on TV complaining. This does nothing for the southern border. Does nothing does nothing to secure the southern border. No, it's avoiding a global financial disaster. It has nothing to do with Republican scapegoating about immigrants. No, it's about it's about raising the debt. My God. And by the way, Ron DeSantis, he's going hard against this. He's campaigning against it. So where are we? House Republicans have kind of lost the messaging battle about who won the deal. It's just been these conservatives having their right wing tantrums. And McCarthy's just looking like the adult in the room who got the deal done. Matt Gates even says he thinks that McCarthy's going to be fine. This has been A lot of nonsense, folks. It's been weeks of it. We've talked about it. It's been weeks of performative bullshit by our friends in the Republican Party. They needed to pass a clean debt ceiling bill like they did 18 times for Reagan, seven times for Bush, three times for Trump. They were willing to tank the global economy just so they could own the libs. But can I tell you the part that bothers me that the media is not talking about? Nobody won this thing, right? Because it was all just stupid. It was all futile. We can say, oh, Biden won. But no, nobody won. Nobody's happy because, again, this actually was a compromise. 
But the part of the compromise that the media is not talking about too much was this decrease in domestic discretionary spending and then a record $886 billion for defense. That's an increase over this year. The money allocated for the defense budget is exactly what Joe Biden requested in the 2024 budget. And about half that money will go to defense contractors. When they talk about raising the Pentagon budget, that's not saying we're going to give this money to the troops. It's not saying soldiers' wives are going to have to go off food stamps. No, it's going to private defense contractors. The money is not going to men and women who wear the uniform. Remember long ago, 2015, the year Donald Trump announced he was going to run for president? Back then, that year, we spent $585 billion on our military in 2015. Yeah. In eight years, we have added more than $300 billion in military spending in this country. I mean, Biden has added almost $150 billion to the military budget since he took office. And again, in 2020, Lockheed Martin got $75 billion in government contracts. That's more than one and a half times the entire budget of the State Department. And like, we spent more in our military last year than the next 10 highest speaking countries combined. Joe Biden pulled the troops home from Afghanistan, the longest running war, the most costly foreign war we've ever had. We're going to hear about the, where's the peace dividend? No, no. We brought the troops home and we raised the military budget again. It's not for the troops. On 60 Minutes earlier this month, uh, there, were, there was the investigation that said military contractors overcharge the Pentagon and almost everything the Department of Defense buys each year. So if you're a Democrat, there's plenty still to be pissed off in here. And if you're a Republican, you're going to be pissed off no matter what, because that's what you're told to do. But to recap our weekend, we just survived. Donald Trump demanded the Texas House Republicans not impeach Ken Paxson in Texas. They ignored him. Donald Trump demanded the Republicans not compromise on the debt ceiling negotiations. They ignored him. Biden got it done while Trump was eating Big Macs and playing golf. And again, I don't want to be too hard on Joe Biden. It's good negotiating. They got it done. Uh, the defense budget, it's insane to me. Right when the Republicans are all pretending to be anti-war, this is the perfect time to try to curtail that. Notice all the headlines about the fight, all the headlines about the power struggle, all the headlines about M McCarthy and Biden and the Progressive Caucus and the Freedom Caucus. No one's debating the fact that we added $300 billion more to our military spending in the last eight years. It's madness. Again, thank you, Joe. The GOP's worst ransom demands are gone. No safety net cuts, Medicaid work requirements, it's all good. But we could have gotten all this through the normal appropriations process. We could have gotten here without making a mockery of ourselves on the global stage by almost having default. The bill needs 218 votes to pass. This House. Uh, the GOP leadership thinks there'll be as many as 60 defections, so the bill will likely have a lot of Democrats carrying it through. In fact, watch for that again. You'll see the Democrats coming through to save the Republicans' reckless spending. So... Joe Biden averted a disaster. Economic turmoil would have destroyed the world economy. Deal covers two years. Can we work now on getting bigger majorities in each house so Republicans can't hold us hostage again? Maybe. Um, and by the way, Joe, thank you for committing to paying the nation's bills, whether or not this passes. Because if it doesn't, you're still constitutionally obligated to do so. And you can do it with the 14th Amendment or a trillion dollar coin. <laughs> but again, Republicans, Donald Trump gave us the, a tax cut that gave over a trillion dollars to the wealthiest people with no way to finance it. Y'all don't get to lecture the rest of us about irresponsible spending for the rest of your lives.
<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, everybody. It's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. We're at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. You know, attacks on education and access to information like Florida's SB 266 have never been about protecting students or promoting education. They're about wielding power and eliminating dissent. That's what makes this tactic so dangerous and historically a precursor to white supremacist violence. So says our next guest in a dynamite piece on the Daily Beast called I'm a Professor, Florida Just Banned Everything I Teach. You already know about Ron DeSantis and the White Fragility Act of 2023, that he doesn't want college students to learn anything but whitewashed history about racist violence in America. It's what I call the uncritical of racist theory. Well, William Horn is a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University, holds a Ph.D. in history from the George Washington University. He researches racial capitalism and its relationship to incarceration in the aftermath of slavery. Uh, he is the co-founder and editor of the Activist History Review. His piece for the Daily Beast about teaching in a state whose governor is seeking to suppress every facet of your lesson plan is one of the most dynamite things I have read all year. And I pretty much reached out to him right away to try to get him on the air. What a pleasure to welcome Professor William Horn to Sirius XM. Hello, sir. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I mean, it's really, really very strange to the rest of us who are following this every day, paying attention to SB 266 and trying to understand how Ron DeSantis's presidential ambitions hinge on making racists feel like he's not going to let their kids ever feel awkward in a classroom. I mean, it's it's so hard to understand the the morality and the mentality at play. And I'm just curious, Professor Horn, what what has been your experience watching this unfold in your classroom and on your campus? How has it been for you seeing this gradual process of like, is this guy really going to do this? Oh, my God, he really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really frustrating, terrifying, horrifying, you know, sort of all of the the, the bad things above. Um, 
because I think it's been clear for a bit, um, you know, what he's trying to do, the tactics that he's employing. Um, and I've actually been writing um, about him and about this movement more broadly for, I don't know, almost two years now. Um, you know, they've put out a curriculum, um, in the American Birthright curriculum, um, and it's it's just it's very clear where this was going. And it's interesting, of course, you mentioned kids, right? But you know, SB two six six, we're talking about adults, really. We're, we're right. talking about grown people um, who now don't have the the opportunity um, to learn about things that that often many of us don't learn about, you know, in high school, middle school, and elementary school uh, already. Um, and, and so th- this is really, uh, of course. Um, you know, an attack uh, more broadly, I think, uh, on democracy, because, you know, what we're really talking about here is depriving um, the, most of us um, sort of the information that we need to navigate the world in which we exist. Well, you you say it's it's a whitewashing tactic that has historically coincided with white supremacist violence in the U.S. Now, I know that SB 266 forbids scholars to talk about race, class, gender, inequality, uh, in the classroom, um, it seems almost impossible to do that. You And of course, it's only for people who are non-white or people who are um, uh, not heterosexual. I mean, there's no prohibition against teaching sexual orientation if you're talking about mom and dad. There's no problem with gender identity if you're talking about Mr. and Mrs. But let me ask you, how how do you view this as dovetailing with the history of white supremacist violence in the U.S. beyond the fact that it's trying to... <laughs> I guess, talk it down, downplay how bad it was. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen very similar movements historically. Uh, The United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, waged a very similar movement in the early 20th century. Um, It led to a spike in lynching. It led to a a spike in sort of mass violence events, uh, these sort of massacres that we don't really learn about in history. But there's like one in Atlanta, there's one in Memphis, there's several in New Orleans. If you're from the U.S., right, there's probably a massacre like very nearby where you were. Many of these were inspired um, by these sort of similar whitewashing uh, movements um, that were designed to uh, to denigrate people of color, especially black Americans, um, and to tout, uh, you know, in their language, Anglo-Saxon supremacy. That's I mean, right. so it's, it's a sort of a, a circular logic, right, um, that winds up, uh, you know, really breaking into material life and materially harming people, you know, killing them. Um, You know, so this is something that historically we've seen as a pattern um, and it's one that, you know, appears to be playing out uh, with very similar tactics um, in Florida and elsewhere, frankly. Can I ask, what is what is the American birthright curriculum that um, Ron DeSantis is so uh, fond of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So it's it's a it's a K through 12 curriculum. um, And what it does is it proposes um, instead of sort of we, we talk about the so the GOP education um, movement as being about banning things and it does but it also mandates teaching certain things in certain ways um, and so the American birthright curriculum essentially mandates a sort of a nationalist um, you know an exceptionalist uh, teaching of history uh, in, in the classroom um, and so what this means uh, in the in, in fact in the language of SB 266 um, is an emphasis on the quote-unquote Western Canon um, which okay. is sort of code um, in, in the American birthright curriculum for um, celebrating the founders. I mean, sort of things that you would imagine that it would yeah. mean. Um, what's interesting though, of course, is that it, you sort of can't even teach America's founding documents um, with while following SB 266. Yeah, can, um, can, you, you know, can you unpack that a bit for yeah. me? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah, um, so like 
if, if we think about sort of the original founding document, uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, it lists these series of grievances after this sort of the section that we all read in grade school. The very last one of those grievances uh, makes a direct reference to slavery. It makes a direct reference uh, to a, a genocide of indigenous people. I mean, in fact, the grievance that uh, Jefferson and others uh, make against the king um, is that he sort of gave inadequate support um, to their uh, ambi uh, ambitions of a genocide um, and land theft uh, against indigenous people um, and to like their further maintenance of slavery in the U.S. Right. Uh, there's just no way to teach that document, right? Like you just sort of have to pretend that that isn't there if you're going to follow SB 266. It simply isn't possible. Right. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating to me that there are so many core components of your curriculum uh, that you have taught to adult students that now right. suddenly you are not allowed to say. And I guess the most obvious question is, what has been the response of your adult students? I mean, I, I assume that there is probably always the temptation to go ahead and just teach the lesson plan you have that you normally would do, except there's always the concern there's one person in the room who's going to want to make it interesting for everyone else. I, I'm just curious how it's been for you, sir, navigating this and, and, and what the adults in your educational care have, have said about it. Sure. And I should clarify, I teach at a, a, a Catholic university, you know, so I wouldn't be subject to this law, right? If, if I, you know, uh, it doesn't apply to me directly. I do have colleagues right. who it does apply to directly. Right. Um, and part of the reason that I wrote the piece actually is that they're afraid to speak out. You know, they're afraid yeah. of losing their jobs. I'm not in a situation, right, where I have to worry about that, right? Um, and so I have a little bit more leeway in that regard. My students have been overwhelmingly receptive uh, to, you know, learning about the past as it existed in the world that it exists before us, right? The, the world that the past sort of creates, that we inherit, right? Um, they've been overwhelmingly respect, uh, receptive. Um, you know, I've really, I, I say this in the piece, uh, but I, I mean it. Um, I, I really haven't had students sort of complaining that they felt bad, right? And that would be fine yeah. if they felt bad, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't had that ever happen. I know that sort of is the allegation that, um, you know, I guess professors and, and teachers are here to sort of make white children feel bad. And I guess in this case, white grown adults feel bad. Um, right. That just isn't the outcome that, that I've ever seen. Um, and that just simply isn't what we do. <laughs> you, you write beautifully in the piece on the Daily Beast, chronic intergenerational poverty in resource deprived neighborhoods might seem like an individual failure until you learn about the sprawling system of segregated opportunities from redlining and sundown towns to the ongoing efforts to keep schools segregated and underfunded. In fact, those racist systems not only produced wealth inequality, but also created a whole host of problems that we face from chronic flooding to never-ending traffic jams. Now, that very powerful paragraph you wrote in public universities in Florida would not fly, would it? I mean, just talking about things like institutionalized racism, talking about how redlining was deliberately done to keep an underclass, the way the law is set up, if anyone had their white fragility threatened by this, they could go ahead and sue a school or a parent could sue a school yeah. or any kind of school district or any teacher over the discussion of facts and theories in a classroom. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it makes a classroom, in fact, you know, it's simply a space of right wing indoctrination. That's the only possible outcome of, of actually following this law as it's written. Yeah. I mean, it, you also say that it might seem like the attacks on, on on education will be limited to states with far right politics, but the history of these movements suggest otherwise. We get into now how this is really a long line 
in white supremacist approaches in this country. I mean, it's it's it, it you you connect the timeline going from Andrew Jackson straight here. And it seems like the modern racism is the denial of racism. The modern racism seems to be, well, we've had a black president, so there is no more racism. And that's how they just kind of get rid of the discussion of, of actual problems, much like how the Supreme Court just said, well, we've got a black president. That means we can get rid of the Voting Rights Act and all the preclearance rules. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, that sort of that whitewashing, that, that denial uh, tactic is just that, a tactic. Um, but when you look at the policy, they're very clearly policies that are designed, especially in Florida, um, to attack marginalized and especially black for Floridians. Um, you know, and so if we were to look at, for example, the, uh, the anti-protest laws um, that DeSantis signed um, several years ago now uh, that allowed motorists to run over uh, protesters. This That's is in the right. wake of the Black Lives Matter uprisings of the 2020. It's very obvious who this targets, um, you know, and of course, we've had protests since then, um, not by Black Lives Matter activists who were not run over, right, and who weren't Thank subject you. to arrest or anything like that. Um, you know, and the same thing is true for the voter suppression laws, uh, for the the sort of the, the what is it, the, the voting um, fraud, um, is it task force, I think, um, that has uh, sort of like very visibly arrested a very few a handful of like, you know, former felons who thought they had the right to vote because Florida on camera, actually did in on, fact they brought, right. uh, yeah, they brought yeah. a camera crew for their for their arrests of non-white felons. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's very clear, in fact, you know, that the racism is there, you know. Um, and, and so there is this, uh, you know, sort of bad faith thing that's going on there. Right. Bad faith, meaning that like. People are saying one thing, but like very obviously doing another thing. And that's what we're seeing in DeSantis's Florida. It's also, you know, um, a, a hallmark of fascism, frankly, is this sort of yes. bad faith, uh, you know, um, rhetoric that we see uh, coming out of Florida and elsewhere. And one of the things I really got from your piece, Professor, is it really was a, a, a century long slow burn leading up to the Civil War, just as it's been this slow burn ever since this Cold War, hot war in this country. I'm very curious to ask what parallels you found with what they're trying to do to stifle the teaching of racism and race history now with, say, the white nationalist presidency of Andrew Jackson, uh, Donald Trump's favorite president uh, right. who slaughtered plenty of Indians and got his portrait on Trump's Oval Office wall. What 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 parallels do you see from what uh, Andrew Jackson's charming rustic friends did? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Jackson, of course, like famously signs the Indian Removal Act. Um, he's you know, known for uh, slaughtering indigenous people. He actually invaded Florida before it was a U.S. state to slaughter more indigenous people. Like a very bad dude. Um, but on top of that, um, he really made his platform, you know, what, uh, you know, politicians in the 19th century would say, the 1800s would say, was a quote-unquote white man's party. Um, right. And so he transformed the Democratic Party, which is sort of the white conservative party of his day, um, into a, a sort of a, a white conservative reactionary um, force. Uh, so we get, in fact, like sort of what we call universal manhood suffrage um, under That's Andrew right. Jackson. This applied to white men and to only white men. Um, and in fact, we get a sort of a massive expansion of slavery, again, as a result of, of Jackson's presidency um, in the states like Mississippi and Alabama, 
that we really associate with the institution, um, that's directly like a, a result of his policies. And so, in fact, you know, we have, of course, in like, you know, the gag rule, which I mentioned um, in the piece, um, and the, sort of the attacks on the, the presses and on the mail, uh, we have uh, attacks on education and access to information that correspond directly with these other movements that, that you know, really transform space um, and limit the opportunities available uh, to everyone who is not a white man. Yes. Uh, you know, I want to ask one more thing about history. I, I've heard in the past about um, the da United Daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah. I didn't realize how the parallels to Moms for Liberty or what we're seeing in Florida mm -hmm. right now are. What, what did the United Daughters of the Confederacy do that echoes to this day? I mean, so the most visible thing they did, actually, they were the group who put up all of those monuments um, that Republicans love to defend, um, all of these, quote unquote, Confederate monuments. They weren't put up by the Confederacy because the Confederacy was defeated too quickly to put up one of their own monuments. I mean, they put up zero monuments. Um, th this was the UDC um, who put up all of these monuments. Um, and, and so I think it's, of course, very telling um, that, that, you know, again, Republicans are rallying around these very monuments um, that the UDC put up a century ago. But they also played an instrumental role in rewriting the textbooks of the early 20th century um, to change um, the sort of the, the, the understanding of what the Civil War had been about. This is right. where we get sort of slogans about, quote unquote, states' rights, mm -hmm. which, of course, you should always ask states' rights for what or to what right it's always slavery it's it's That's it's right. about slavery um and so they did a lot of rewriting textbooks um they did a lot of um sort of smearing reconstruction uh, because in fact we had like a really robust multiracial democracy in many states in the u.s right after emancipation so like 1868 yeah. 69 70 we have black representatives in congress we have an enormous number of black legislators at the state level. Um, and this is just anathema to them. And so they go to great lengths to make sure that any mention in the school curriculum of reconstruction and of black Southerners or black Americans more broadly is one that is denigrating. Um, and you can go back and look through all of those books. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois gives like a really good summary of those um, yeah. in black reconstruction in the last chapter of that book. It's a, just a really powerful chapter. And he calls this the propaganda of history because it was a, a massive propaganda campaign. And it was one that really brought about what is, in fact, an apartheid regime uh, in Jim Crow, Thank which you. was not limited to the South. We talk about Correct. it as if it was limited to the South, but this was Correct. a national thing. Um, you know, the second Klan that came about during Jim Crow, this is a national I think the largest uh, state like per capita membership uh, was in Indiana. Um, it had an 8 million member membership like nationwide. Um, this was a national thing. Um, and so I think that's really important. We see these things happening at the state level, just like they did under Jim Crow. But they have always spilled out into national politics and often, uh, you know, horribly into national policy. And that's something that we just can't allow to happen. Uh, Dr. William Horn is the co-founder and editor of the Activist History Review. His new piece in The Daily Beast is, I'm a professor. Florida just banned everything I teach. Professor Horn, you are welcome back here any time to talk history and politics. Uh, this platform is always open to you. What is the best way for our listeners, sir, to keep up with you and all your work? Um, yeah, thank you so much. I'm still on uh, Twitter somehow. Um, Me too. At W-I-H-O-R-N-E, at W-I-Horn. Um, and I have a Substack. Uh, it's the title is in case of emergency. Um, and I write about a lot of these issues there as well.
Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back again anytime. And uh, and best of luck to you. I really hope that if this isn't resolved soon, that at least um, it'll elect a lot of people who respect education more than Ron DeSantis. Thank you, Dr. Horn. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Come back again. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Let me quote Joe Biden a couple weeks ago when he was speaking in the commencement for Howard University. And he said, on the best days, enough of us have the guts and hearts to stand up for the best in us. To choose love over hate, unity over disunion, progress over retreat. To stand up against the poison of white supremacy, as I did in my inaugural address. To single it out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. And then they clapped and he goes, and I'm not just saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say it wherever I go. Well, uh, when he said that, that was sort of inviting people and hecklers to come out and say, well, you're just pandering to black voters talking about white supremacy and racism at HBCUs. How, how, how dare you, sir? You're supposed to be here talking to the graduates about their future. And instead, you're you're presenting your own anti-white supremacy bona fides. I, I, I call foul. Well, it was a bit of a controversy. And so I was really, really keen to read the piece in HBCU Pulse by our next guest. No, Joe Biden was not pandering by condemning white supremacy at Howard University's commencement. Now, Randall Barnes is the founder and the CEO of HBCU Pulse. It's a great website, and he's the host of HBCU Pulse Radio here on Sirius XM HBCU Channel 142. That's Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 4 p.m. Central. Randall's a fall 2019 graduate of Fort Valley State University, which is in Fort Valley, Georgia. He served as a 2017-2018 White House HBCU All-Star for the White House Initiative on HBCUs. He's the author of three books. Guy just graduated college a couple years ago, author of three books, most recently a Queen's Pain about the struggles of HBCU student leadership. What a pleasure to welcome Randall Barnes to Sirius XM. Hello, sir. How you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Hey, I, I'm amazing. So glad to be on this amazing platform with the Sirius XM family. Well, right on. Let's talk about it, because I loved your piece. You know, Howard University is such an important part of American history, and uh, they get heavy hitters consistently uh, to come and do the commencement speech. And this year, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. It was the sitting president who came to, to talk to the graduates um, and he got his honorary degree. And I know that plenty of sitting American presidents have spoken at Howard's commencements over the years. Were you surprised that it turned so controversial so fast? 
I wasn't really surprised because I know that at this point, as we head towards 2024, that anything that Joe Biden is a part of is going to be controversial because people are trying to find some way to condemn President Biden to make a political point because they want to get political points. Then they want to redeem those political points when it comes to 2024. Uh, He's spoken at South Carolina State University. Um, He did it on behalf of of, of Rep Clyburn. Um, And he said the same thing um, at South Carolina State University. You know, and he's always been big on HBCUs. You had President Obama that spoke a few years ago at Howard University. They've had seven sitting presidents, both Republicans and Democrats, that have spoken at Howard University. So I wasn't necessarily shocked for him to be there, especially with Howard being in D.C. I was sort of shocked that the line about white supremacy went as far as it did. And Mm. it really reverberated. And I saw a lot of people online really going with the talking point that he was pandering. That's what shocked me. I wasn't shocked that on Fox News they're saying, oh, he's at this HBCU, he's pandering. But I was shocked there were a lot of people, even folks that identify with with Democrats that are saying, no, he was pandering. And I'm like, I I just don't see the angle. (laughs) I mean, you know the angle. The angle is that the one thing that unites everyone, be they conservative or progressive, is umbrage. We love to be offended. Liberals and conservatives alike, we all love to be offended. And so I, I, I wasn't surprised by it, but I mean... You, you you wrote beautifully in this. You said, look, if you have a valid critique, it's great. But folks are obsessed with finding anything to challenge the Biden-Harris administration. You said, I've watched nearly every speech Biden has given at every HBCU during his tenure. His commencement remarks seem to always have the sound of a campaign stump speech. I'm not the biggest fan of that. Uh, commencement speeches should be all about giving words and encouragement. But you, Randall, really tracked down the receipts by finding every other speech he had given at HBCU's where he made the same commitment to stand up against white supremacy and to call it terrorism and to call it out by name. Exactly. And, you know, what was so funny about it is that, like, when I was listening to the speech before I saw the blowback of it, I was like, President Biden, and like, this is my president. I support him. I'm on Twitter always debating about President Biden and all the amazing things that he's doing. But I'm like, oh my gosh, just go there and tell the graduates that they're going to be amazing and do a lot of amazing things. Like, don't don't make it too political because now we're going to have to defend the whole entire thing of making it quote unquote political. But I just feel as if when you look at President Biden's speech, one thing he does well when he, when he speaks, he invokes imagery. And that's one thing I love that President Biden does. He invokes imagery. And when you listen to President Biden enough, you know he gets in his pocket when he talks about white supremacy and especially Charlottesville. So like when you think about what he was saying about white supremacy, it's not new. And if people just listen to this, the State of the Union address, if they listen to what he said at South Carolina State University's commencement in 2021, and even at his alma mater, the University of Delaware, where he talked about Charlottesville, he talked about white supremacy before. And the part that made me upset that made me want to do the written commentary, and then I did the Randall Stocks commentary on my show, is that People were acting like this was new. And I think a lot of folks knew that he talks about white supremacy and they wanted to just say it to be disingenuous. And that was the part that made me upset because a lot of people are running with it. Yeah, well, I mean, if the worst thing we can say about him is that he repeats himself, I can live with that, right? Because I remember... The speech that shocked me the most, Mr. Barnes, was uh, his acceptance speech in the summer of 2020 for the Democratic nomination where he actually said something in the speech that I couldn't believe a presidential candidate was saying, and I still don't know how it could ever happen, but he said, 
we are going to root out the white supremacists from our police precincts in this country. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened. Uh, I don't know how he would do that. But the very fact that a guy running for president as a Democrat was willing to say that. And this old man, like, I'm always saying old man Joe Biden is the best Joe Biden I've grown up with. He's not the kind of brilliant speaker that a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama is. But in a way, he's got something different. It's when he slows down and forces the whole room to get hip to his rhythm and his breath. And he's an old man with a stutter who speaks very slowly. And then he surprises you time and time again. By so getting the problem and nailing the problem, you mentioned the South Carolina State address he gave in 2021 to the graduates. Did he hit the same exact talking points that people were hitting him for hitting this time? If I played you the speech right now and I didn't tell you what it was, you would think it was Howard. You'd be like, he said that Howard. I could say, yeah, you believe it because it essentially was the exact same thing. And even when I did the audio commentary and I played it, when I was editing it, I was like, this sounds just like Howard's speech, except the sound system was different because he sounded more clear, <laughs> Howard. I must admit, he sounded more clear, Howard. But like, it was sound system was a little bit different, you know, because he says this everywhere, especially when he goes he to HBCUs everywhere. because he feels as if he has to hit that point when he's in front of a black audience. But he even talked about it more expansively in 2021 because that was because that was before the midterms you know That's so right. i think that like i said a lot of folks are, are are making are making just a fuss about nothing and folks are still talking about it not as much as they were a couple of weeks ago but he did the same exact thing when he went right. to south carolina state and even when he talked about voting rights in the auc morehouse Spelman, clark atlanta morris brown he did the same thing when he was in the auc I'm reading this speech right now. He said, uh, we continue to confront the oldest and darkest forces in this nation, hate and racism. Despite all the laws enacted through the struggles we know, we knew we could make progress. But what I didn't realize is you can defeat hate, but you can't eliminate it. It just slides back under a rock. And when given oxygen by political leaders, it comes out ugly and mean as it was before. We can't give it any oxygen. We have to step on it. Now, this is not like the Joe Biden I grew up with. Look, he he spoke brilliantly against apartheid in the 80s. But for many times when it came to race, you know this, Randall, Biden said a lot of stuff that hasn't aged very well that a lot of white men said was the normal back in the 70s. Um, I have over the years become really impressed with how sincere he is. And a part of me thinks that he's very aware of how unpleasant some of the commonly held opinions he went to D.C. with uh, have become. And I, I do really think when I see this man that he really, as a Catholic, thinks that reconciliation and healing and racial justice matter. I, I don't think he's pandering. I don't think he is either. And I think that where we're at in our politics, we're not allowed to change. We're not allowed to evolve. Right. And I think that's why we are where we are. And, you know, I'm reading a book called um, um, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. And it's so interesting, you know, seeing the dichotomy of the inside of the Biden campaign at the time, because I was sort of a part of it. I was on panels like these different things. So it's crazy to see it when I was actually a part of it as I was graduating, even when I was a senior at Fort Valley. And one of the things that you saw in the first couple of chapters is that he he was reckoning with his record on race that he had when he was a senator. Like all those years when he was in the Senate, he was reckoning with that and he knew he had to atone for the crime bill. He knew he had to, to atone for, for right. a lot of the yes. things that you said, the racial jungle. 
he had to atone for it. And I think a lot of folks don't understand that he he is atoning for it and he is making it right. And everything that he's been saying, especially about race and that was in the Live Every Voice plan, he's been trying to make happen. And the things that he hasn't been able to make happen is because Democrats don't control the House and the Senate in a full enough majority. Amen. Like we control the Senate, but not enough to break through the filibuster. So some of the things that we want to happen is because we're split across political lines. Absolutely. I want, I want to ask you about some of the conservative uh, pushback against Biden, because I heard this from some of our friends on the left. Oh, he was pandering. But then I heard it from right wing people like on Newsmax and Fowl. Oh, Biden was pandering to the to, to, to the HBCUs like like I, I can't even imagine what the conservative version of that would be to HBCUs. You know what I'm saying? Like like how is decrying white supremacy pandering? But we know that when it's our friends on the right critiquing, we get these phrases like the democratic plantation, which makes me crazy. I know you have thoughts on that phrase too. Like they're always going to try to find new ways to tell us that they don't take slavery seriously, whether it's waving the flag of Confederacy or saying things like the democratic plantation. It always seems, Randall, like it, it's a, a very cynical way of the Republican Party to just spit on any kind of progress or any kind of efforts at kindness or reconciliation. But, you know, one thing that I, I think that hits to the tone of what you're talking about, because I totally agree, is that I understand like some African-American black people like being distrusting of the government and being distrusting of politics because of what we've been through. Hell yeah. But at the same time, yeah, absolutely. to change a system we have to change the system on several fronts and, and politics and government is how we change the system. So when you look at, for example, the politics of black folks, a lot of folks think that pandering means, oh, you're just saying you condemn white supremacy. What are you doing? But they're not talking about the two executive orders he signed that directly goes after white supremacy. They're not talking about the child child poverty, That's how right. he addressed it. But they're not talking about the funding for HBCUs. They're not talking about the advocacy for HBCUs. They're not talking about how he's put so many diverse individuals in, 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 in his cabinet. And also you, you have Judge Jackson that's in, that's in the Supreme Court. Like they're not talking about the things Amen. he's doing to combat it systemically because you can't do it in two, three or four years. You can't you can't change a whole entire system in eight years. And I think that what people are saying when they talk about the pandering point is that he's at an HBCU. He's talking to black voters. So when he hits that tone about white supremacy and condemning white supremacy, they're saying, see, he's in front of black people. So he's saying what the black people like, because, of course, like, we're going to agree with that. Like, of course, like, what we, we, we be like, no, Joe Biden, we don't agree with you. White supremacy isn't bad. No, we agree with that. But what it turns <laughs> into is that you're talking to a valuable voting block and they're saying, hey, you're pandering because you're talking to these black people about what they're dealing with instead of talking, instead of talking around it. That's and right. I think that that's the problem people latch on to. Yeah, they're actually trying to smear the concept of direct democracy and giving people shit in exchange for their vote. That seems like what they're trying to smear in general. Um, you know, I, I want to ask about your history because I find it fascinating in your academic career when you were uh, a White House HBCU all-star for their initiative on HBCUs uh, in 2017 to 2018. That would, of course, be when the former host of uh, Celebrity Apprentice was in the White House. I'm curious what that experience was like for you, because I, I got to be honest, I felt like a lot of what Donald Trump did to HBCUs, and I don't want to be unfair, but it seemed like it was really, really was pandering. 
that it really was Jared Kushner talked him into this. Jared Kushner talked him into the First Steps Act because that'll make black voters like you more. And and we've already heard Donald Trump complaining that he did these things and it didn't make black bo- black voters like him more. But I'm really curious what your experience was like, Randall, uh, working with the White House. It's so interesting because I wanted to be an HBCU All-Star Ambassador. Um, now they call them HBCU Scholars. Um, I wanted to be one so badly. Okay. And the program started in 2014 under the Obama administration. And when I was a freshman, it was the 2015-2016 school year. And I didn't apply because I'm like, I'm a freshman. They're not going to pick me. Like, why would they pick me? So my sophomore year, I decided to go for it. And I made that determination like during the 2016 election. Like, I'm going to do it. Then Trump won. And I'm like, I really don't want to do this anymore. But I still shot my shot at it just because I knew that this is something that I wanted to do. And I got it. And, you know, one of the questions that they asked is that you could be in the room with members of the administration and also the president himself. How would you conduct yourself? And I said that I'll conduct myself respectfully because I'm respecting because I'm representing my HBCU Amen. and also HBCUs around the nation. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I got the position, you know, and it, it was so hard because like our conference, it's a whole HBCU week conference that normally goes on. But our visit got scaled down because of what Trump was saying about Charlottesville, about some other things. Really? So our trip, yes, it almost got canceled. So we had a summit directly at the White House. And if you let Amarosa tell it, if you read a book, she swears it was her idea. I can't say she's right or wrong because we did meet her. I cannot say she's right or wrong. If you read her book, she talks about us in it. And I read it. I'm like, I'm in Amarosa's book. That's crazy. You know, so she swears it was her idea. <laughs> We went up there. I honestly thought we were going to meet Trump. And I was like, I'm not going to smile in these pictures. Y'all are going to know I do not rock with this man. And I even, right. and it's so funny now because I, I cringe at it now. And, and I, I talked about it on a Twitter space that I was on. Like we were in the Eisenhower building and we were eating breakfast and we were just talking. We were so excited to be around each other, the, the other HBCU students that were all stars. And we were told that the director of the White House initiative that Trump appointed, Holyfield, Jonathan Holyfield, he's going to come speak to us because he just got appointed. Then he, they come back in and say, hey, we need you all to line up because, because Amarosa and Betsy DeVos want to speak to you. And I'm like, huh? So I get <laughs> up. Amarosa and, and I, Betsy DeVos? What a summit. Wow. Go on. And Betsy DeVos. And I get up. I get up and I say, listen, y'all, take out y'all's phones because they're not going to treat us like we political pawns. And I look back at it and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so cringy just thinking back on it. But then I think about it and I'm like, you know what? That was really cool because they were not going to play with me. And I'm I'm documenting all of this on HBCU polls because y'all are not going to make it seem like Randall Barnes is up in meeting with Trump. Y'all not going to make it feel that way. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, listen, this is not going to happen. But at the same time, it, it, it was it was such an amazing trip because like we got to be in the fire and exactly. we were really advocating for HBCUs and showcasing what was going on. I met a lot of amazing people. I was affirmed in the fact that my voice matters because when you go to a smaller institution, you think you don't think your voice matters sometimes, especially it's like in Howard or North Carolina yeah. A&T. They have so many more students and that you, you see in the media. So me being at Fort Valley, they said, we see what you're doing. Like we, we know what you're doing. You're doing an amazing job. And even meeting the individuals with the initiative, they said, Randall, we know you. Like they would say, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Randall, we know you. I'm like, oh, you know, you know, so it was really an amazing experience. And I'm glad I didn't allow the man that was formerly in the White House to deter me from going. 
You know what? I love how you walk the line because I, I've done events with Trump before he was president, you know, when he was just a, a clown here embarrassing us in New York. But in the White House, I mean, you did it like you went there fully prepared to be respectful if you had to, while not letting yourself be another unfortunate prop for one of his what me racist photo ops. So it sounds like you played it exactly perfectly. Yeah. And he, he actually wasn't there. Uh, that was, I believe, the week he was beefing with Kim Jong-un before it became friends. I mean, I think called him yeah. Little Rocket Man. And I was like, they about to blow us up. I'm like, can I get back to Georgia? Maybe I'll be safer in Georgia. Like, you know, like, cause I was like, it's about to go down. And why I got to be in D.C. for this? Because like, like, so we didn't we didn't meet him. I, I remember going to the East Wing. I remember going to the Smithsonian National African-American Museum. And I still talk about, you know, all those instances to this day, because all I really ever wanted even now is to be in the mix and be impactful. That's what I always yeah. say. I want to be impactful. So to have had that, that opportunity, I mean, I wish it could have been under President Obama or President Clinton. You know, I wish mm-hmm. it could have been sure. that. But. At the same time, I, I'm still glad for that experience and the advocacy that I was able to do. And it made me look at politics differently, seeing it from the inside. How so? That's interesting. Because I, I saw it in, in in a way where, like, when you look at politics, especially when you're younger, you think that, oh, it's just folks just talking. They're not necessarily doing anything. But when I saw how they moved and operated, especially in that administration, because it, it was a situation, too, and I talked about it in an article that I wrote where it was an article that came out in the Daily Mail. You don't know, you never know if, if it's true or not when it's in the Daily Mail. But they said that Omarosa was on a no-fly list. You know, That's so right. I was like, okay, Omarosa's on a no-fly list. But she was around us a lot. She was around us a whole lot. And she, you know, she went to how she went to, to Central State and she went to Howard. So she kept coming into our sessions and we're looking around like, why is Omarosa here? Like she just we just saw that the thing while she here and then and then they're like, hey, yeah, H.U., you know, she's coming in repping Howard. And, and I'm like, oh, it's because she can't fly, she can't go to the other areas of the White House. That's why. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, she with us because she can't go nowhere else. You know, so like it was just interesting just seeing the politics of how politics works, because yeah. you interface with it when you go to an, like, like an HBC or even a college in general and student leadership, you interface with politics, but to see politics in politics makes you look at things differently. I can't even imagine. To me, Omarosa is the lady I did the Wendy Williams show with a few times. Like I hung out with her in the green room and then suddenly, you know, you, you, you know better than me. Hey, listen, let me ask you something. Randall, tell us a bit about HBCU Pulse Radio, which is on Sirius XM uh, Channel 142. Your show's on Fridays at five o'clock. Um, tell me a bit about how you've evolved the show and, uh, and, and, and how you put it together. I think it's so fantastic that, eight, that Sirius XM has uh, been a platform for this. Yes, and it's amazing. I really thank Sirius XM for the opportunity, but also, ironically, Howard University, which is so interesting because you know, I wrote the article about President Biden being at Howard. Uh, so Howard University started, uh, you know, of Sirius XM HBCU. Uh, they started it um, in, I believe, 2010. And, you know, they started and they gave HBCUs an opportunity to have programming on the station and some independent creators that are in the HBCU community. So uh, it's so crazy because it's been a year since we started the journey, like on Memorial Day weekend, I decided after listening to the station for almost a year that I wanted to have a show on Sirius XM HBCU. Didn't wow. think I would get it. I got to be honest. Didn't think I w- it would happen. But, you know, I shot my shot. 
and I sent an email and Miss Vicky Saunders and the Howard University, a WHUR team, like they were so receptive to me that they believed in my vision for the show and what I'm currently doing with HBC Pulse on all of our platforms. So it was it was definitely a, a process, but it was so fun being in the process of getting the radio show going. Uh, we premiered on January the 6th. Uh, we've been, you know, going every week. We've talked a lot about politics because that's where my interests lie, especially with Ron DeSantis and what he's doing in Florida. I've definitely been talking about that. Um, yeah. but we talked about um, HBCU sports. We've talked about culture. Um, and it's just so many different things that we're doing. And, you know, the, the highest potential of what I want HBCU Pulse Radio to be hasn't been reached yet because we just started and I really want to truly hit my pocket of being impactful. Like I really want to bring on politicians. I, I want to bring on, you know, change makers that really can talk about the change that they're doing. I want to bring on young voices that were like me that didn't have the platform because oftentimes in media, we don't, we don't have the platform to have that, that experience. We don't have the platform to get an air check or a real going especially when you go to a smaller institution not even just hbcus when you go to a smaller institution you normally don't have that that, that opportunity so i want to open the door to more young people to tell their story and to speak on what they believe is right and i want to be so impactful with this show i want to impact policy i want to impact Brilliant. how people move i want people to be to be afraid because if, if i do this random thoughts to you and you're doing something wrong I want people to be like, oh, man, like I need to do the right thing. Maybe I need to go talk to these HBCU students at Fort Valley. You know, so I really want to be an impactful and grow the impact of the show and really help people any way that I can. And I don't think Brilliant. we're there yet, but I think we are. Uh, well, you listen, you're invited on this show anytime. We'd love to promote anything you do because it's a blast to talk politics with you. you. You brought up DeSantis and you had a tweet last week that I actually really loved where you were talking about his Twitter debacle. And you said DeSantis thought he was being inventive by announcing on Twitter spaces when spaces crash on a regular day. Such a microcosm of his governance and his presidential bid. He thinks he's doing something that works only to realize it isn't and no one wants it. Mr. Barnes, this is what I've been saying about uh, the boy who cried woke for a very long time, um, that all of these white fragility bills or the heterosexual fragility bills, the Stop Woke Act, you can't say this or the the, the anti don't say gay bill, uh, lying migrants to get them on a plane, uh, being shitty to trans children. It seems like it's this Republican disease of campaigning as hard to the right as possible, trying to be as cruel as to marginalize people, whether they're asylum seekers or trans children as possible, hoping the right-wing Christians will reward you for that unchristlike meanness that they excel in. And it's like time and time again, we've seen this three elections in a row. The rest of America's not there. America might have picked Donald Trump as a novelty and because they weren't crazy about Hillary one year, but even then, she still won the popular vote. And these Republicans keep running so far right to get the nomination that by the time they get it, they've alienated that entire big middle of independent white people in the middle of this country that they need to win. I I'm curious, is this exactly how you think DeSantis is going? I do, but also I'm scared because DeSantis is so effective at being bad at his job that I think people are going to think he's good at, at his job the people that actually are going to vote for him. Like he's yeah. so bad at being bad. Like he's so good at being the villain and so bad at being bad that I think that some people are going to be like, you know what? I think he'll be more effective than Trump. And that's yeah. what scares me because yeah. what he's doing 
with policy in Florida is theoretically speaking working. And when I tweeted about um, how I'm really afraid of a Ron DeSantis presidency, um, you know, one of my friends that that also was an HBCU student leader when I was um, at Fort Valley, he said that that's not going to work because he has basically a supermajority in Florida and he's not going to have that if he were to become president. And I'm like, you know, that's true, but there are things that he really can do such as like replace, you know, the Supreme Court justices that are going to retire. Like, like, so like, there are things he can do that can be really harmful. And I'm honestly nervous and a bit scared for where we go. And sometimes I lose hope because misinformation one runs rampant and it doesn't matter if you tell the truth. It doesn't matter if you have the facts. It doesn't matter if you write an article with three clips of Joe Biden talking about white supremacy at a place not named Howard University. They're going to say, you're a Democratic show. Oh, you're just a puppet. You're tap dancing for Joe Biden. So it's like, okay, yeah, so if I, if I tell the truth, I'm lying. So I just think that narratives take over everything in our yeah. lives. And I think that narratives are going to be a big part of what comes into 2024. You know, so I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous, but I think that the Twitter spaces was a microcosm, like I said, of what right. type of politician Ron DeSantis is. He is a disaster. He thinks he's doing so well. He thinks he's doing something groundbreaking, but then it doesn't work. But then you have forces that's like, well, what are Democrats doing? Well, didn't Joe Biden release a, a, a commercial that was actually very well shot? It was amazing. You know what I'm saying? Did he just release that? Like, isn't he the currently the president as a bully pulpit? He's addressing things. Didn't he just say how he condemns white supremacy? But what are Democrats doing? That's the thing that makes me lose hope of, that's How it. are we going to combat this misinformation? So, you know, when it comes to him, like, like I'm, I'm, his, I'm his biggest enemy. And I, and I know he, he don't care about me. He don't know who I am. Like, I, I know I'm a fly on, 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 on the wall to, 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 to him. But at the same time, I'm going to keep speaking out and hope that people hear, hear what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. And hopefully I can protect those HBCUs in Florida, especially FAMU, which is the only public HBCU in Florida that will be directly impacted by his policies. And let me just say, uh, maybe his policies didn't work that great. I mean, they are third nationwide in COVID deaths, um, lying to some migrants to get them on a plane so you can burden the Republican governor of Massachusetts with your little stunt. I don't think that's going to help him. And I don't think when all these lawsuits start coming through against schools for stop woke or don't say gay, that it's going to make him look that great either. Do you think this field is Trump's to blow? It seems like DeSantis is just sitting around waiting to see if Trump flames out with all of his criminality. I think it is like it, it was so funny that Tim Scott thinks he has a chance. It's so funny. You know, no, he's saying? running for I, I, vice president. He's vice president. Oh, for sure. Him, right. Yeah. But, but at the same time, Tim Scott thinks he's Barack Obama. Like, you got to look at Tim Scott. He really thinks he's the Republican Barack Obama, especially in how the Tony we, we, he was he was hidden in his speech and, and then oh, blaming no. President Biden for things that President Biden wasn't even in office for. That was hilarious. But I mm -hmm. think it, it is only because of the brand of Trump and the fact that he was the president. And there's always a contrast based on who's in office. And a lot of people um, that are not as politically astute, I must say, and that's just the truth. A lot of folks that don't read political books like how I do, a lot of folks that are, aren't tuned in to shows like yours, they'll look at Trump's presidency in a more favorable light because they're yeah. comparing him to what they disagree with now for President Biden. So it, it like I, I think it's his to lose. But I think that Trump is so unhinged and yeah. I think he's so unstrategic. And what a lot of people sleep on is that President Biden and, and his advisors 
are strategic. Like they sleep on that. So I just believe that it's going to be a huge fight. But I think that, like I said, misinformation by Vice President Kamala Harris. I think I wrote an article of the accomplishments that that she's done because she's one of the best vice presidents, if not the best vice vice president ever. And I'm gonna stand uh, on that. Yeah. Like I was, I was, I was stand on that. A lot of folks come at me, but I'm gonna stand on that. Um, and no, also I get it. I was on a general, TV show last month and they were all debating, oh, we're, the job she's doing. I'm like, when in history have you ever heard someone discussing the vice president wasn't good at their job? I've never heard this discussed as a topic for any of the white men who've held this position historically. Never. I forgot, I forgot Mike Pence was the vice president a couple of times. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, didn't, I didn't know he was vice president until January 6th. He was hiding in that room trying to, trying to, trying to get away from them folks. So, like, to be honest, like, you know, it, it's it's a different standard that, that she has to, to hit and uphold that doesn't really make sense. But like yeah. I said, it's the misinformation. And I, I think right. that we have to, you know, persevere over the misinformation and really inform people. And someone told me this on a Twitter space. His name is Isaiah doing amazing things um, in Texas. He said that, you know, don't lose hope because you're talking to people that are listening. Maybe everyone isn't listening. People are saying all these different things, but maybe someone is listening and someone is listening that you'll affect with the information that here's what you're saying and gets mobilized. So, I mean, as someone that is now in media with this radio show and the different things that I'm doing, that's really what motivates me because now I'm not into the posturing of let me debate just to debate. Let me talk just to talk. I'm not into that. Like I want to say things that really matter and really impact people and make them mobilize to save and protect our democracy and protect what we hold dear. Right on. Well, you're welcome to come back anytime to this show. Randall Barnes is the founder and CEO of HBCU Pulse and the host of HBCU Pulse Radio on Sirius XM Channel 142. Randall, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? So you can follow my personal Twitter at author Randall B. You can follow HBCU Pulse on Instagram at HBCU Pulse, Twitter and TikTok, the HBCU Pulse. Subscribe to us on YouTube, HBCU Pulse, and our podcast, HBCU Pulse Radio, Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio. If y'all want to donate to us, dollar sign HBCU Pulse, you know, uh, paypal.me slash HBCU Pulse. If y'all want to send, you know, some inspiration, because I always need it, just tweet me at author Randall B, because sometimes I really need it. But thank you all just for your support, and, and, and thank you, sir, for your support as well. Oh, stop it. Randall Barnes, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Please come again. This platform is always open to you. Let's put you on a panel with some comics sometimes and have fun for an hour. It's really a pleasure to talk politics with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let's do it. Have a great evening. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress After Dark. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better. David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. So really quick, you know, Donald Trump needs to distract from a lot of things. He needs to distract from the Jack Smith case and the Fonnie Willis case and the Alvin Bragg case. He needs to distract from the fact that Kevin McCarthy just folded like a gap sweater. Uh, He needs to distract from everything. So today he announced he was going to sign an executive order day one ending birthright citizenship for the children of undocumented immigrants, which he says is a reward for breaking the laws of the United States. Now, this will shock you, but Donald Trump is ignorant. He is stupid. Uh, Very few immigration or constitutional scholars believe it is within any president's actual power to change the birthright citizenship laws. Uh, Donald Trump said a few years ago he was going to do this. He's talked about it every now and then. This is why people like Ron DeSantis fans call him empty promises, right? But uh, that's what he's doing. He said, on my first, on day one of my new term in office, I will sign an executive order making clear to federal agencies going forward the future children of illegal aliens will not receive automatic U.S. citizenship. Okay. um, He doesn't understand the 14th Amendment. You know this already. He said this before. It is not possible for a president to change the constitution because he signs an executive order i just i but it doesn't matter because trump doesn't mean it what is he doing he's playing the desantis game he's playing the republican game he's trying to shit on immigrants as hard as possible so the christians will like him because he was cruel to a marginalized community that's how it works in the world of fake Christian Republicans. And I need someone smarter than me and more moral than me to make sense of all of this. Thank God we've got Dr. Tracy Pearson, legal analyst and consultant. You've seen her on TV, radio, podcasts, Forbes, Fast Company, New York Post, News Nation. We're always thrilled when she brightens up our Tuesdays. Dr. Tracy Pearson, welcome back to SiriusXM. Well, thank you, John. It's always great to be here. Tuesday is my favorite day. I'm really honored that you have such low standards. Thank you. Uh, I got to begin by talking to you about this debt ceiling thing. We're all so sick of it, and it feels like it's never going away. But they did it. They put together a package. Um, A lot of liberals are really mad. All conservatives are really mad. Is that a sign that this was a good bill? When you see this much discontent on both sides, you know that both sides gave something up, even though you're not supposed to give anything up with a damn debt ceiling? Well, when it comes to agreements, typically when both sides are both unhappy, it's a good agreement. But I think there is a point at which we are at uh, a lot of performative stuff. I live in a world of cynicism where I think that it's very possible that the Democrats are overselling their dissatisfaction because Mm. I read... Uh, the, um, the Congressional Budget Office report. And I think that McCarthy gets spanked. And I think that, uh, that President Biden did a, a phenomenal job. Um, he held him to two years. Uh, he uh, increased SNAP benefits for um, folks who, who need SNAP, uh, about 78,000 uh, on an for average veterans, month. For veterans, for homeless people, yeah. 
Exactly. Um, the 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 amount of, of money that redu- is reduced for TANF is negligible. I mean, we're talking five million over ten years, which is about five hundred thousand dollars a year. It's it's a it's a it's it's nothing. It's a blink. Um, not even it's an eyelash. Um, and so, and especially given the restrictions on TANF block grants that existed previously. So right. I think that that he did an extraordinary job. I was listening. I always listen to the show when I'm on. And, and I, I think that um, absolutely the defense budget is out of control. But you also have to consider that our economy is different than China's. And, and we also charge $5 million for an aspirin in a hospital. And yes, so it, yeah. there's a whole lot of corruption, a whole lot of upcharging. Um, and so but I think that that what happened here was phenomenal. And um I, 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 you know, I, I obviously I, you and I chat a little bit about the show via email, and I think that um, there are a few options ahead of us. Uh, we've bypassed one of them, which is that it's already gone from the committee down to the floor, um, or right. it will go to the floor. And so I think that that if you know, the ideal thing would be that the Democratic caucus will hold, but it's not going to because there are mm. two representatives that uh, aren't going to be able to be there for the vote. So okay. we already are losing two votes. We know that there's a, a massive number of, of uh, GOP members that are not happy with this and probably won't vote for it. Um, and so hopefully we can maintain enough of the GOP so that the progressives, the, the hardline progressive folks can vote against it um, so that we can give them cover. Uh, but, you know, we're going to see what happens. You know, the way this works is that there's going to be amendments. There's going to be an amendment process. There's going to be a big dance. There's going to be lots of speeches and it's going to go flying over to the Senate. We already think that uh, that Senator Lee is going to tank it potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it, we got a long road ahead of us, but it has been a, just a slog on our stomachs to get here. And I'm tired of it. So am I. Can I just be honest? You know what? Um, Yes, on everything you said, and it's definitely a great achievement for the president. Um, But if Mike Lee were to kill this thing, I got to be honest, there's a part of me that would just love to see Joe Biden say, folks, we tried. The dysfunctional Republican Party doesn't want to work. They don't want to serve you. So I'm obliged. 14th Amendment. We're done. I mean, like, Joe Biden, if, if that happened, Joe Biden could take any whiff of any kind of consolation prize away from Kevin McCarthy, because then McCarthy, then the Republicans would get nothing, which is all they should have gotten in the first place, because they didn't pull these stunts, you know, 18 times for Reagan, seven times for Bush, three times for Trump. I, I like to think that that's probably what's going to happen. I I see um, Senator Schumer. He is he is, you know, pounding the podium saying that he's for the bill. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a whole lot of speaking going on to the the press. Uh, I we're not hearing anything from Nancy Pelosi. Um, and and well, I the, but the new Democrat being... coalition. I mean, the, the the 98 Democrats and the new Democrat coalition have endorsed the bill. So, I mean, that's that's it. Right. You need 218 votes. Here's 98 Democrats ready to help. Uh, you could lose yes. up to 60 Republicans in the House at this point. Absolutely. And we're headed that way. I, I think at some point today, around one o'clock or so, I was sort of doing the whip count and it was about 22 we were up to. Um, yeah. And so it's it's getting there. Who knows? It may change overnight. It may change with amendments. I think the amendment process could tank it. Who the heck knows? I mean, you know, when we were dealing with a regular, normal, bureaucratic Congress, 
we could probably guess what was going to happen. We can't do that anymore because we mm. have a whole bunch of dumb people that, that were elected that honestly don't know what they're doing and they don't know. I mean, I, I'm just so frustrated by how low we have fallen in our standards yeah. of expectations of, of what a member of Congress is supposed to be and how they're supposed to behave and, and, and what the knowledge they're supposed to have in their noggin. Well, let's let's let me play a clip of a, an actual independent person. And by that, I mean a person who's paid to be unbiased. And that's the director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, Shalanda Young, who offered a more relatable reaction to news of the debt limit deal. Um, this is interesting because the OMB, their job is to be nonpartisan. This is a very nonpartisan sigh of relief and hope it moves forward. This is a five. I know I breathe a little easier. Uh I called my parents, told them to breathe a little easier, uh, that a deal had been reached, uh, and that's what this was all about. It's an agreement that not only prevents the first ever default in this country, but it will protect our hard-earned and historic economic recovery. It will protect our legislative achievements, including the legislation that uh, is creating good jobs in this country. And it's protecting critical programs that millions of Americans count on that you've heard me repeatedly talk about. I want to be clear, this agreement represents a compromise, which means no one gets everything that they want, and hard choices had to be made. Negotiations require give and take. That's the responsibility of governing. For months, the president made clear, and you may have heard so anyway, that's the end of the clip. But I mean, I, I get a, I breathe a sigh of relief hearing the OMB lady breathe a sigh of relief on this. <laughs> yes. I mean, they are uh, reaching an agreement and or they've reached an agreement and that is great. But that that is that is one step in the process. And you have to then hand it off to the mob and ask them yeah. to carry it over the line. And I, I think that it is possible that McCarthy can carry it over the line. I don't think it's probable that he can carry it over the line. I think that that given sort of the the little pizza party they had this evening where he had to face criticism over what he did. Remember, we've got people who are voting members who can um, move for amendments who are going to stand there and bellyache, who do not have a, a moral connection to the history of our country, who do not have a, a a satisfactory, never mind advanced understanding of the history of our government and yeah. the immense uh, obligation to maintain this union and to maintain our economic stability. They really don't have it. I have to tell you, I don't I'm, I'm not even really convinced that these Republicans are all that outraged. I mean, what's you, you know, you yeah, it's all for theater anyway. Right. This whole thing has been for theater. It's all been performative. The entire game of being a Republican in Congress is to go on TV and act like you're doing shit and do as little actual shit as possible. I mean, all these Republicans threatening to to have a vote to recall the Speaker of the House, which one can call for a vote now. How much of that is these guys just playing to the folks at home, just having their outrage for MAGA and that's in a way them giving cover for McCarthy as well? That's the that is a question. I think that when we look back in history, you and I are thinking about a time where they would pound their fists on the podium and they would stomp their feet and they would do the business of the country. 
I don't know with these people. Some of them are sheer wackos. They walk through magnometers with guns onto the floor, refusing to wear masks. Okay, that's the people that we're talking about here. And so I think that that anything goes. I mean, who thought it was going to take 15 votes? Hmm. <laughs> we are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Tracy, I want to talk to you a bit more about, uh, you know, the, the really sexy topic of the debt deal, but I, I, I have to bring up uh, your excellent new piece on your uh, Substack. Uh, I've got it on your LinkedIn. Governor Newsom's KMO problem. Leslie Van Hooten denied parole again. We're talking about the Manson family, Leslie Van Hooten, right? Yes, we if, are. If that's the case, then, then let me go to my own personal uh, 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 Charlie. Uh, Stephen from Kentucky. I know you're a big fan of the Mansons and their extended work. Welcome, Stephen. You're on with Dr. Tracy. Hi, how are you all tonight? Very good. We are wonderful. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thank you very much. Um, I have a couple of things to say, um, uh, not only about this topic, but about the former First Lady Rosalind Carter as well. Uh, I don't know if you all have talked about her tonight either. We have Um, not. Tracy, have you heard the announcement about Mrs. Carter? First thing this morning, yes. Uh, For those who don't know, First Lady Rosalind Carter, who, who, by the way, in her career and post-White House has campaigned for improved access to mental health for years, Uh, She has been diagnosed with dementia. Um, Former President Carter has been in hospice care for three months, but um, they're still having meals together. And uh, the Carter Center said we recognize, as she did more than half a century ago, that stigma is often a barrier that keeps individuals and their families from seeking and getting much needed support. And I take this personally because Nancy Mace is a Republican congresswoman who's sold herself as being more sane than MAGA. And today she made a dementia joke about Joe Biden. She made a joke about a president who can't find his own pants. And you know what? I've had it. I do material about this. Yes, Joe Biden is an old man with a stammer. But anyone who's doing these dementia jokes is someone who's never loved a person struggling with dementia. Because if you did, you'd care. If you cared, it wouldn't be a punchline. Stephen, go ahead. I'm sorry for getting all preachy. No, it's all right. Um, I wanted to first say about the Mansons. You know, my mother was actually out there when that happened. Uh, We used to have relatives who lived on Balboa Island, and they used to go out every summer. And they actually went out there on that Wednesday, and I believe Miss Tate was murdered on uh, Friday night into Saturday morning, if memory serves correct. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, um, you know, Miss Fountain, if if anybody was released from that group, I would have said Patricia Krimwinkle. I've seen these individuals over the years be interviewed, and it seems like Miss Krimwinkle is the only one who really has admitted any genuine remorse about what she's done. I think Miss Van Houten's a space cadet. I don't think she knows her ass from her hole in the ground, just like the rest of them. And I do hope that she has been rehabilitated. But the crime, the nature of this crime, it's the same way with Bobby Kennedy's murderer that they were wanting to parole several years ago in California, um, Sirhan Sirhan. Yes. Um, You know, I'm sorry, but uh, with the horrific nature of this, I don't think that they should be out. 
Well, you let, know, me, let me just, really let me just quote. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me quote Tracy in her piece, Tracy, if you don't mind. She, sure. Um, Leslie Van Houten was a member of the infamous Manson family cult. Manson died in 2017. At 19 years old, after a traumatic family life, Van Houten joined the cult. What followed was her participation in the heinous murder of a California couple she was not involved with and did not commit the murder of Sharon Tate. Um, what made you want to write this piece, Tracy? I, uh, I believe in process. I Me really too. believe in process. We count on it. And uh, Governor Newsom was making a political decision. Uh, the, this woman has come up for parole multiple times, multiple times that they have, have voted for her to, to receive parole. Um, the parole board has, and he overrules it. And he overrules it because it's a popular decision to do. It is, right. it is a political decision. It is not based on information. And that is, in fact, what the appeals court in California said. Was that there was Jerry no Brown basis. did too, though, right? Jer- Jerry Brown turned it down too, right? Yes, it's been going on for a long time. I mean, she's come up multiple times, and she has worked to uh, to rehabilitate herself behind bars. And um, the fact is, is that the standard is: does she pose a danger to society today? And she doesn't. She's seventy-two, right? Yes. I mean, Stephen, I, what, what do you what do you think? Like, I, I always, you know, I'm against the death penalty. And I always say if you kill someone, then you have to go to jail for as long as your victim remains dead. But I'm, I'm against executions. This is a person who has been cleared for parole half a dozen times. And the parole board has recommended she be released on parole. She's in her 70s now. She renounced Manson years ago. She got a master's degree in prison. She's led self-help groups for incarcerated people. I mean, is there... Is there any point where this person should be allowed back out into society or should she die behind bars? Well, with all due respect, you know, we've all had problems in our lives. Let me tell you something. I went through a nervous breakdown uh, 15, 16 years ago and I've been ostracized. I could have easily have done what she did, but, you know, I didn't. And I, I'm, and we all have a different life. I understand that. And I applaud if she has been rehabilitated. But, you know, uh, the problem that I have is what about Rosemary LaBianca? She yeah. was murdered by this woman. Yeah. She stabbed her how many times? And yet, yeah. where is she now, Mrs. LaBianca? You know, that's the problem that I have, the horrific nature. And I'm sorry, I really am. But, you know, you have to draw a line somewhere. And I do agree with Newsom's decision on this, as well as his decision to keep Sirhan Sirhan in there. I mean, you know, I I understand she's an older woman, but at the same time, Manson was an older man. And I will say one thing, though, that I agree with what the doctor was saying. This is more complicated than people think, too, because the fact is Manson, and, and we've all known people like this, Manson, Donald Trump was like this. There are some people out there... My grandfather used to say all the time, there's a special place reserved in hell for people that take advantage of the down and out. And yes. that's exactly what Miss Van Houten was. She was down and out. And these yes, other she young was. Women, and by the way, she had, had a, a life of abuse. Her mother, her yes, mother made her have an abortion in the house and bury it in the backyard. Like no. she had a really messed up life. I believe that. I really do. And it's unfortunate that, this, that, that they went down the road that they did. But it also is worthy of mentioning this because... Manson, I believe, knew that these young women had no sense of self-esteem. Now, when I went through my ordeal, I didn't have a sense of self-esteem either, so I can understand that. And it's not until we, we all are in the same boat until we become consciously aware of who we are. And, and that's the problem in these situations, because 
I don't think, I think, you know, you mentioned that she was 72. Well, she's not the same that she was at 19, clearly. Yeah. You know, obviously yeah. that's, that's very uh, relevant. But, you know, in some of these other cases, like Susan Atkins, and, of course, there are different women, but there was stuff that came out about her. I mean, that she had right. been married how many times? Tex Watts, Watkins had had conjugal visits, you know, and all right. of this. And, you know, he was involved in this whole thing, too. You know, I just, what I really grieve for in this case is Sharon Tate. Because, you know, this year she would have been 80 years old. And not yeah. to mention the fact that her little boy, I, I sometimes again, think again, this woman, little, this woman, This woman had nothing to do with the Sharon Tate killing. Let me let Tracy jump back in. Tracy? Yeah, I, I think that we have to remember that this woman was was a member of a cult, and and thinking about how do you become a member of a cult, and and what is the impact on your brain and your thought processes and your decision making. And there's a really great book written by a, a fabulous um, uh, scholar, uh, Steve Hassan, Doctor Steve Hassan, and yes. uh, it's about mind control. And um, he talks about this bite concept where it's about behavior control, uh, information control, um, uh, you know, um, uh, emotion control and, uh, and being able to, to, to control your brain by virtue of restricting the access to certain parts of information and the ability to move your body around. Yeah. By the way, Patty Hearst lawyers had enough money to convince a jury of that, didn't they? I mean, Patty, Patty Hearst lawyers had money to convince people that cults can reprogram your brain. Leslie Van Houten didn't. Go ahead, Tracy. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I, I, the social worker who, who worked with her in incarceration uh, while incarcerated um, says that she's a victim, as much of a victim. And so I think that we need to, to consider at least that, that she has paid her debt. The purpose behind here is to pay your debt and to prove that you are not a danger. And she is not a danger at 72. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think, a bit different. Um, with Sirhan Sirhan, uh, to some degree, um, and especially given given the circumstances, but but this this woman was was a a, a very very young woman who who got sucked into a cult by a psychopath. Yeah. I also agree with you that while I like many things about Gavin Newsom, that a Democrat's not going to be able to pardon her. A Democrat could never do it because you already know the Republicans will just call you a murderer for, for the next election cycle. I, I get it. This, this, this woman, regardless of whether she deserves a chance at liberty before she dies or not, I don't see how she can get it because of the politics. And I think that, well, and I think exactly. And I think that what will happen is potentially it's going to be appealed to the California Supreme Court, which is the highest appellate court. And uh, the the appellate, the 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 mint level appellate court was a two to one decision um, that that Governor Newsom didn't have any basis for denying her the parole. And mm-hmm. so I suspect that that the California Supreme Court will arrive at the same conclusion because they're, they're It just doesn't meet the standard. Brilliant. Stephen, anything else on your mind? Uh, uh, Dr. Trace, are you there? I wanted to ask you a a question about something, since you know a little bit more about this. Have they considered giving Miss Krenwinkel parole? I'm not sure. I can't tell you. I I think that you come up for parole, you you, you know, there's a there's a a process uh, every 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 number of years that you can seek it. So Mm. um, it isn't like they just hand it to you. Right. Well, I asked that question because I know she's done a lot with domestic violence victims, and she's actually done work with people that have been in cults when she's been in prison. 
And mm-hmm. I know that when you mentioned the, the whole thing about cults, and it is very important because nowadays, you were just mentioning a couple of minutes ago, John, about you know the uh, extremists in this country, particularly yes. on the right wing, how that Trump, uh, Trumpism is a cult, the MAGA, whole, the whole thing with this. And I do think it would be interesting if they <laughs> propose mental health care reform that actually deals with something along those of lines. Course, of course, but then you're talking about, about but, they, but it's about the access to the mental health care, and then you're talking about single payer. And so the Republicans will always say, oh, it's about mental health. They don't really mean it. Stephen, I gotta go. Craig Winkle was recommended for parole. She was. Stephen, I'll give you the last word. You know, one of the most important things of her reign as First Lady was the 1977 National Women's Conference. I was actually born around the week that that happened. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but but, um, I was very proud of that. I was born on that Tuesday, and it happened on that Friday. And it was the very first time, and the only time to my knowledge, that the government actually decided to advocate on behalf of women's rights uh, with some sort of event of that nature. Uh, Betty Ford was there, Lady Bird Johnson was there, and Mrs. Carter had talked about, you know, how she felt that the ERA was very liberating. And she talked about how... um, you know, her roles as a Christian and as a wife, as a mother, as an equal partner, as a businesswoman, homemaker, um, all those different things. And it's interesting that, you know, today, maybe they need to consider reviving the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, I, consider I it? No, it should idea. be front page news all the time. We should be talking about it all the time. We should be shaming Democrats and Republicans over not supporting it all the time. It's completely current, Stephen, and I got to run, but I I thank you. I I have an important news um, I have to reveal. Last week, we told you that Robert De Niro was expecting another child at age 79. He has kids in their 50s, and he's going to be a dad at age 79. Uh, Tracy, do you know what I'm going to talk about? We just have learned not to be outdone. Al Pacino is expecting his fourth child with his 29-year-old girlfriend. He is age 83. De Niro's 79, Al Pacino's 83, they're both making sequels. It it it, it takes all kinds, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, like, but you know what? It brings up the ageism point here, because we've talked about this as well. Uh, ageism, I don't think uh, it matters as much when you are a rich movie star or rock star. Every time we hear, oh, God, Mick Jagger has a big announcement. I'm like, not another solo album. Oh, good. Just another baby in his late 70s. But I mean... The ageism makes me crazy how it's levied against Joe Biden. And, and you know, you had some thoughts about this. Um, you you, you yes. wrote to me, fuck age. <laughs> because <laughs> you don't believe there should be an age requirement for president. And I agree. Absolutely. I, I Yeah, there's an old Irish joke that has to do do along this line. And if we have time later, I'll tell it. But um, I think that age is is a easy punchline this stuff um and we need to stop that crap because i really want somebody who knows what the hell they're doing and i understand that we he sort of knows what he's doing because he's being so trump you know he has these advisors and stuff but i think that frankly we ought to have the test that demonstrates that you know what the constitution says now it doesn't mean that you're actually going to follow it you can still do (laughs) stupid crap like he did 
But you have to understand that an executive order can't override the U.S. Constitution and that you have to have that sucker ratified by all the states if you want to change it. I mean, it is just obscene to me and that 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 you think that you're going to sign an executive order that is going to eliminate birthright citizenship because you're just a racist piece of crap. And and. And, and even and if he I, knows, yeah. even if he knows, like, let's assume Stephen Miller, before that statement went out, set, knew that there was no way a president could change the 14th Amendment with an executive order. It doesn't matter. He's just campaigning to be more racist than DeSantis. That's all well, it's about. Yes. And also, I wouldn't doubt that he would do it and let it travel through the courts because he didn't care when it came to the Muslim ban. He didn't care when it came to anything. And he doesn't care about our our government, our nation. I mean, I I was sitting this weekend thinking a lot about Memorial Day and, and I actually tweeted, I think, at one point about let's remember what the three holidays are and what they stand for. Um, and and the importance of um, of of thinking about the Confederacy and thinking about yes. um, just just literally people seceded from the country so that shortly after we became a country because they wanted to maintain having slaves. That's and, it. And, 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 and by the way, anyone says that's not the reason. Go look at the state secession charters for every state that left. Go ahead. That is the reason. And and so when you support Confederate monuments, you're supporting people who wanted to mean to continue to enslave people because they wanted to maintain their plantations because they wanted to maintain their sources of income. I mean, that is really what it comes down to. And so when it is just in it it incenses me that that we have gotten to a point in this country or, or that we continue to be at a point in this country where people are willing to be hoodwinked about what can and cannot be done with our government and Thank that you. our our constitution is just darn important and you ought to know what it says and what it can do and if, me- if you're old and you do i'm good if you're old <laughs> and you don't i'm not good let me go to dylan calling us from my beloved city of albuquerque dylan welcome you're on sirius xm with dr tracy pearson how you doing Hey. hey, Tracy, John. Good to hey. hear from you two again. Hey. Uh, you know, uh, so to, to add on to that uh, a little bit, so it was uh, about two weeks ago I was talking to my uncle, and and he told me that something I never knew, that, uh, and surprisingly it's on my Rodriguez side, but my, my grandpa, he, he married uh, an Anglo, my grandma was white. So mm-hmm. her side of the family, her I think it was her great, our great uncle, um, there's this guy named William Mumford, and um, and so I look him up on Wikipedia, and he is famous for during <laughs> during uh, the Civil War after after Grant took over. He was in New Orleans, and after Grant took over um, New Orleans and everything, and they were taking down the flag, you know, um, the Confederate flag. So apparently, my great 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 uncle, whatever. Uh, was so upset that they're taking down the flag that they took down the American flag and, and, you know, burned it and put God. back the Confederate flag. I know, I know. And I'm like, God, why do you have to tell well, me this? But the parent, but apparently back then they, you know, they took shit like that serious. So they yeah. hung them. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's what happened when, when you're a, a treasonist back in the day. But anyway, Damn. on a, on well, a, I, I think I know, we don't right? take slavery seriously in this country either. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I know, right? Well, on a brighter note, um, I wanted to call and talk about, uh, I'm sure you know Johnny Greenwood, right? The uh, guitarist for Radiohead? Of course, from Radiohead, yes. Yeah, so Great he, composer. he came out, he, yes, he is, and he, um, and I didn't know too much about him, but I I heard this uh, new album that came out, and it's with this, uh, uh, another Israeli rock musician named, I don't know, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but it's Dudu Tassa, I believe, mm-hmm. and, um, okay. They they just came out with a new album. It's uh it's freaking awesome. It's really cool. Check it out. It's uh I will. It's like it's Arabic. He's he's playing the hell out of the guitar and it sounds um you know, it sounds amazing. Uh listen, so, Johnny yeah. Greenwood did the soundtrack. He did the he did the score for uh There Will Be Blood. And um and I I think he's I love everything oh, he does I love outside that movie. of Radiohead. Yeah. He did all the Paul Thomas yeah. movies. Oh yeah. Oh right amazing. On, amazing. Great guitar yeah. player too. Oh yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, and indeed. also the smile. You know their side project that he does with 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 uh, uh, what's his face from uh, from Radiohead. The smile, their other band, which is also very good. Yeah, name. I'm horrible with names, but I know exactly. That's okay. <laughs> 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 That's right, Tom York, and the band is called The Smile. Sick, sick. Yeah. Well, yeah. Spread that good music around, and um, hell yeah. Thanks, and then, you know, and anyone that has uh, you know Confederates back in their family, just make it right. You know. Which yeah, yourself. man. Yeah, it's just past. like I mean, there, there's the if you're still defending the Confederate flag in this century, don't go telling me about your patriotism and don't go telling me about your Christianity. You have failed <laughs> yes. the moral yeah, IQ right test. Thank you so much, Dylan. Tracy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, pretty simple. Um, listen, before our break, can I just talk about Evan Corcoran for one second? I mean, it really seems like. <laughs> When they made Evan Corcoran come testify against his client, Donald Trump, I think Corcoran wanted to. We have now learned from the timeline that Evan Corcoran gave Trump 50 pages of notes saying, no, you can't take these documents. It's illegal. And they just set him up to be the, the schnook. They de- he just sent his butler in to take the documents out a minute before Evan Corcoran was supposed to go in and find the documents. Am I getting this right, doctor? Because it's yeah, you're, crazy you're ab- and it's illegality and it's stupidity. <laughs> It's it is it is insanity. I, as a lawyer, I if I couldn't verify what uh, I had been told by my client, and and I was in, at all given any indication that I should probably verify it, man, I would right. never have put it in writing and certified it, or told somebody in the government that that those fat with those purported facts. This guy, you know, basically, if 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 somebody waved me off of, hey, can I go look in your office to see if you've got any of this stuff? And they go, oh, no, no, you can't do that. That's the first indication that I need to go into that freaking office and look. And Mm so, I mean, I had a whole list today. I I call them the Trump Chronicles in in our email. Um, And and for folks listening, I I send John an email. I say, this is what's on my mind today. And so I had a whole list. He's got a lot of legal lawyer issues. (laughs) And his lawyers are fighting. Uh, He is doing stupid things, or at least there's some reports of him doing some stupid, stupid things that could be witness tampering. It is it is just um, this is going to this is going to we're going to have many hours devoted to this. We really are. The two of us. It's going to be really interesting. Everyone Corcoran's not that famous now, but I think in six months he will be. Dr. Tracy, how do we follow you in our final seconds? Uh, On uh, at Tracy Explains on all the social media and Dr. Tracy Explains on Substack. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Sean, for helping us get through the night. Chris, feel better. Theo, we'll see you when you get back, and we'll see the rest of you guys tomorrow right here on Sirius XM Progress. Peace.